man, I'm, I'm all excited. I'm nervous. I got my money with me, and I'm hoping we can do business on this thing. I'm, I'm trying to get it. The third person pulls in the parking lot five minutes before we're supposed to meet to do business on the banjo, and my brain's going a million miles, and I was thinking, I didn't know anything about this guy coming, see? We're going to get in a bidding war with this thing or something, but it turned out he was just in there to get him a biscuit and his wife a cup of coffee and, and drove off. Greetings, everybody. Keith Billick here. Hope you're having a great day today. Welcome to the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. Welcome back if you are a regular listener. And if you happen to be a first-time listener, we are so happy to have you with us. If you are a banjo player or fan of banjo music, you have absolutely found the right podcast. And I like to say there are only two kinds of people in this world. There are fans of banjo music and then people who are fans of banjo music and maybe just don't know it yet. So either way, welcome in and enjoy your stay. Now, even though the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast welcomes in all banjo fans, there is a select group of fans that has a very special place in my heart, and those people are, of course, the VIPs, the very important pickers, and those are the patrons of the podcast. If you're not already one of the VIPs, head over on to patreon.com slash banjo podcast and sign up to support the show with just a few dollars per month. It really does help. I am eternally grateful. And you even get some extra rewards in return, such as recordings of this intro and outro music with banjo tablature and everything. So you can impress your friends with the, the new music you've learned and help support your favorite podcast in the process. This episode's very special Patreon supporter of the show is a Hall of Honor patron, and that is Nathan Sims. Nathan has been listening to the podcast since before he even got a banjo. He scored a set of picks and was practicing patterns on his guitar. So that's some real dedication. He's down in Tennessee, soaking up as many banjo experiences as possible, going to jams, concerts, and of course, listening and supporting the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. So Nathan, thank you so much for your support. And once again, that's patreon.com slash banjo podcast to sign up to become a supporter yourself. Another cool thing we do with the VIPs is a monthly VIP video meetup. And this month's VIP lounge will take place this Saturday. That's January 28th at 12 p.m. noon. That's Eastern time. So mark your calendars and I hope to see you all there. And as always, you can send me feedback, questions, suggestions, uh, constructive criticism, destructive criticism, all of that can be sent to pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. Always love hearing from you that way as well. have to catch my breath after that one. Today's featured guest is the one and only Jim Mills. Jim is a very special player to me. One of the first bluegrass albums I ever bought and still one of my favorites is the Dolly Parton The Grass is Blue album featuring of course Jim's playing on banjo and I was instantly hooked and have been a fan of his ever since. 
He is, of course, one of the most awarded banjo players ever. He has won the IBMA Banjo Player of the Year Award, I think, six times, multiple Grammy Awards, and along the way has become one of the world's foremost authorities on pre-war Gibson flathead banjos. He literally wrote the book on Gibson Mastertones from that era. So I just can't say enough good things about his playing. I view almost everything that he's recorded as essential listening to banjo players, especially his three solo albums. And it was uh, really kind of a bucket list experience for me to head to his home. If any of you have seen photos of the banjo den that he has down uh, at his home in North Carolina, you have some idea of, of the impact that it might have had on me. But it's a, uh, it's a wonderful place. Uh, Jim was a great guy and very generous with his hospitality and his time. So please give a warm picky fingers welcome to Jim Mills. All right, Jim. Well, I'm, I'm a big fan of yours, so I'm really honored to be here. And I, I'll have to say that I don't think I've ever been quite as disappointed to have an only audio podcast as I sit here <laughs> in, in your basement, just surrounded by as much banjo, cool old banjo and related bluegrass paraphernalia. I really wish people could could see where I am right now, but well, they'll just have to take my word that it's, it's a... Welcome to making a point. We'd love to have him come here, banjo <laughs> showroom. And uh, I set it up. When I set it up, I tried to set it up in a way where it would be a place I would want to go if I were going to look at banjos. And I've collected old memorabilia as long as I can remember. And I was on the road for nearly thirty years, and I just had a knack for picking up stuff wherever I was at, posters and pictures and that kind of thing, uh, as well as the banjos going through life there. Well, I think you've succeeded. It seems like somewhere you that someone like you would be <laughs> quite happy to hang out. It's hang a, out, yeah. a thirty year collection of junk, but uh, it's it's fun to it takes me back to a lot of places. I just about look at everything in here and remember where I got it or it has a story to it or something like that. Oh, that's great. Uh, so more back to more things about you though. Let's let's just get everyone started by going back to the beginning. I know you come from like a several generation family yeah. of banjo players. So I think that gives us some idea of how you ended up being a banjo player, but maybe tell everyone like, what is your earliest memory of hearing it? And maybe when did it click for you that you wanted to get one in your hands and try to play? Well, uh, like you mentioned, I, I consider myself a third generation banjo player. My grandfather, Russell Hugh Mills, played uh, claw hammer banjo, we'd call it today. Back then they just called it old time banjo. And and I, that was probably the first memory of any knowing what a banjo was to me. Didn't particularly interest me as a kid. I can say that honestly. <laughs> and my my dad played later on in what would be called today. Uh, it was popular here in North Carolina in the forties and thirties and forties, pretty much before stroke style came along. A two finger style. Sure. And he played a lot of the same tunes that we play today: Cumberland Gap, Sally Gooden, Cripple Creek, and that kind of thing. But just with two fingers, a thumb and index finger. And initially that interested me to some degree. And I tried to learn like my dad was playing in the two finger style. And I got ahead of myself a little bit when I was about probably five or six years old. I knew my dad had played some, but it didn't really click at that time when I was that young. But mm -hmm. my older brother, Alan, had he was 10 years older than me. So by the time I was crawling around the floor playing with toys, he had a record collection, you know, and, yeah. and turntable and stuff. And uh he had some greatest hits of Flat and Scruggs, and on there was the original cut of Foggy Mountain Breakdown from December 1949. 
course, I didn't know any of that. I didn't know who they were, what they were playing or anything. It just came on, and I was in the floor playing with Tinker Toys or Blinking Logs or something. <laughs> and he, he told me many times a story. Uh, he had a, the latest in speakers and all that kind of stuff. And he said, I stopped doing what I was doing, playing with toys in the floor and crawled to the speaker cabinet and put my head on it while mm. Foggy Mountain Breakdown was playing. And he said it was almost like it drew me like a moth to a flame. I had to get closer to it to hear it. And at the time, I don't think I even knew it was a banjo. It was so different than the banjo that I had heard my, my grandfather Interesting. play. Because of the three-finger style, it was like a rapid fire. I mean, like a jackhammer, you know, compared. Sure. Yeah. And uh, he said when it went off, when the song went off, I said, play it again, play it again. And he put the needle back on and played it again, you know. Mm -hmm. And I, they played it like three times in a row. He said I was just crazed about it. And that was really the first thing that I really liked it. And from there on, of course, I was too young to know anything at that time. You're five, six years old. But later on in life, I've, I noticed my dad playing this two-finger style. He's playing some of those same songs. Mm -hmm. And I pretty much learned what he was doing right away. It didn't take me long, six months or so. I was playing pretty much what he could play. And he Still in the two-finger two style? Two-finger style. Mm -hmm. I was probably 10, 9, 10 years old. And my dad always encouraged me just to put that. My dad played with a thumb pick and a finger pick, mm -hmm. but he encouraged me to put the third finger pick on. He knew Earl Scruggs played with three fingers. Okay. He just he never tried to tackle it. He said, just put that third pick on and maybe it would come to you. And uh, so I took what I had learned two-finger style, put the other pick on, and eventually it did. You know, the three-finger roll just kind of came to me as natural as breathing and uh, started playing those particular songs. And I was listening to the records of Flatten Scruggs also as growing up through there. And it, Came to me that way. So that was when you were still pretty young then. What? Oh, yeah, 9 or 10, somewhere along there. I got serious about once I figured out, uh, you know, you could play with three-finger roll, and it mm -hmm. was so much more easy to keep time and that kind of things, and, the, and some of the syncopation things. I wasn't advanced at all at that age. I was just the rudiments of it. But once I figured that out, I started getting serious about trying to figure out what Earl Scruggs was doing, you know, mm -hmm. and I was really – I told an interviewer not long ago, it was, uh, I was almost, even though I'm not that old, I mean, we're talking about in the 70s here, yeah. I was, uh, there, I mean, we had bluegrass festivals and all this stuff going on. I didn't know anything about it. I was almost like a kid from the 50s. I was at shelter not knowing. Mm -hmm. I knew Earl Scruggs. That's all I knew. I didn't know who J.D. Crow was. I didn't know who Sonny Osborne was. I knew nothing about, I didn't know the country gentleman, the seldom seen existed. None of these people, I didn't know bluegrass festivals existed. Yeah. So I was really sheltered. Well, and at that age, you didn't really have the resources no, no. to go explore no, on and your I own. I wasn't yeah. in a, a group of people playing that could tell me these things, you know, just a kid. And my mm. dad, he worked all the time. He didn't know about them either. And uh, yeah. it was just one of those kind of things. But uh, uh, later on, I know you want to get, that was pretty much my start was totally just me in a turntable and records listening and, and starved to death to try to see somebody play play, you know, just to see how they held their hands, how they held their picks, why they did their fingers. And I didn't know the names of chords or strings or I didn't even know standard tuning. Wow. I mean, you, didn't, you started off really, really primitive. So no books or lessons or anything? You were just kind of left nothing, to your own devices? Nothing and... at all. I remember it sounds uh, <laughs> it sounds almost caveman-esque here today to talk about this kind of stuff. But I remember uh, the Beverly Hillbilly show was on. Uh -huh. And of course, Earl Scruggs played the theme, Flatten Scruggs did. And uh I, I didn't know what, like I say, standard tuning was. I just tried to get in tune. I knew how to tune to my ear, but I didn't know if I was, I didn't know what standardization was. But every week when that came on, it would come on, you know, with the theme playing. Mm -hmm. I would tune to the theme, try to get in tune with the TV. Oh. And then I would try to play it as it went off. So that was my weekly tuning. You know, I was trying to get it. <laughs> at least I was in tune with that. You know, and records, of course, the Flatten Scruggs records, I don't know if you're aware, Keith, or not, but. They're all they, over the place. They, they generally yeah. tuned a step. 
higher than uh, than standard. So, yeah. and, and like you say, all over the place, you'll you'll hear them in different places. But that was mainly for vocals, from what I understand. They mm-hmm. they learned that years before playing with Bill Monroe to do what they wanted to do. But but that that was one way I could tune and try to learn to play the song. That was primitive as can be. The weekly banjo tuning. Exactly. I, lo- I love that <laughs> exactly. concept right Yeah, to see how far I got out during the week, you know, when it got back, yeah. I'd be flat or sharp all over the place. Everyone always complains about how much the banjo player has to tune. <laughs> exactly. Be careful what you ask for. I they was, might only tune once a week. I was pretty quick, though. I, you had to get it on the fly while the TV was going, you know. So I imagine, you know, even though your, your dad maybe didn't already know about this other music or festivals, I imagine being a banjo player, he was probably pretty supportive of encouraging you to get out there. He was my biggest fan. And my dad wasn't, I'll be honest, he wasn't much of a musician. He just liked music and Mm -hmm. he had wonderful timing. I will say that he knew good timing, but uh, he never strove strive to be a, a, a musician. It was all for fun. My, my grandfather the same way. They just played square dances and stuff like that back in the 30s and 40s. And my dad even, never even played that. He just played around the house for fun. So yeah. it was never anything that they tried to take any further than that. And uh, I was learning the whole time, like I said, totally by myself, listening to records. And uh, I got, I, th- I think I got the Earl Scruggs book, hmm. the, the instructional book, when I was about 14, but it didn't really do me a lot of good as far as tablature because I had already learned to play enough by ear that tablature was almost too slow for me to, to I could learn oh. by ear off the record better. So I didn't really get a lot of advantage out of that. But uh, when I turned 14, my dad worked for uh, Duke University. He was in cancer research over there. And a lady that he worked with, husband, played banjo in this little band that got together every Friday night. It was just a fun thing. They all had jobs. It was just a weekend fun picking. And uh, she said, you need to take him over there and let him play. You know, I was 14 years old, playing pretty good. I could play pretty well. So that was my first getting to play with a band situation with real people. And man, it was a, an eye opener for me. They, they were all m- much older than me. I'd say the youngest one was probably thirty five when I was fourteen. So right. I was a kid, you know. Yeah. And they had banjo players. It was a free for all. It was the kind of thing they'd invite anybody in. Uh, some some Friday nights you would go and it'd be three mandolin players and two bass players and three yeah. banjo players. It was just a fun thing, like a festival kind Same of. Same sort of informal jam that we it, come exactly. across. Yeah. And it was fun for me because. Uh, first of all, they like I said, they were all older than me. They'd been playing for many years. They had a repertoire of a lot of songs that I'd never heard before. Mm-hmm. Uh, they sang harmony. You had to learn how to move in and out and not walk on other people when they were taking a break. So it was a big uh, learning curve for me. I'd just sitting there playing with a record by yourself as opposed to playing in a band course, situation. Yeah. And these cats were older than me. They didn't think anything about it. I said, hey, back that thing up. You're walking all over this guy trying to sing right here. You're you're walking mm-hmm. on the fiddle player taking a, a solo. So it taught me how to play in a unit in a band situation at a very young age. And I think that's real important uh, to, to learn to play in a as a band in a unit rather than just being playing by yourself or just doing your thing because it uh, – it helped me later years when I did go to work trying to play music for a living in band situations. Yeah, I'm sure it did. What about your experience learning by ear? Do you think that gave you, even though I'm sure it was very, took a lot of patience to do that, do you think that gave you some an advantage in some way over if you had just been given that Earl Scruggs book on I, day one? I can look at the time, of course, Keith, we, you know, you'll know anything as it's going on. You don't think about these things, but I can look back 25, 30 years now and say, I do believe it was an advantage. And I had a 
conversation with the late J.D. Crow here uh, several years back. He's one of my, my all-time heroes. And, and that's on YouTube, so everyone should go call, watch that, too. Yeah, that was a great, that was fun to spend the day with Crow. But we were talking about something else. We were talking about how we learned. Mm-hmm. And we learned very similar, except he was a whole generation prior to me. Yeah, uh, I, he was learning with seventy-eight RPM records, and I was learning with thirty-three and a third RPM <laughs> yeah. records. That was about the only difference. But we were both listening to those records and studying and listening and studying and listening, and we were both talking about the advantages of the youth today. Uh, say, have something like a YouTube that can go on twenty-four-seven, three hundred sixty-five days a year, and learn just about anything you want to learn. Right. And we didn't have that. We had to listen. And but but Crow said something that really stuck with me. And I thought, boy, you know, I'm glad I learned the way I did. He said, not only did we listen to the banjo part that we were trying to learn, he said, but subconsciously, whether you knew it or not, you heard the entire band. You heard the bass, you heard the guitar, Hmm. you heard the vocals, you heard how they worked as a band coming in, going out and mixing themselves almost. And he was right, because you learn what it's supposed to sound like overall, whether you know it or not at the time. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's just getting in it's there. It's infiltrating yeah. your mind that this is the sound that you want to try to emulate. Yeah. And uh, and I'm I'm thankful to have been able to learn like that. And, and also it, it trains your ear to pick up on things quickly. And I found nothing against tablature at all or anything of that nature. I think any learning uh, technique that helps you, helps you. It's a good thing. Yeah. But I do think it's great if you can train your ear to pick up on things. I never did a lot of teaching in my life. I was just a working road musician my whole yeah. life. But I did a few things, and I, I found that a lot of these students had completely learned from tablature and nothing else. And if you took that piece of paper away from them, they couldn't play anything. They couldn't right. play Mary Had a Little Lamb, I mean, if, without a piece of paper in front of them. And I, I taught one a, a student, and I said, you know, we're going to learn this strictly by ear. And I said, you might not be playing it great when we get done with this lesson, but you'll have the rudiments of it and you can leave here with it up here in your head and nobody can take that away from you. And, you know, it's uh, I came up with a saying. I said they were almost shackled to a sheet of paper because right. and and the Scruggs style, I, I've got a lot of ways of thinking about this thing. Maybe people disagree, but everybody's got their own opinion. The Scruggs style of banjo playing to me is kind of like our vocabulary. Everything we speak and communicate, email, type, text, whatever we're doing consist of 26 little letters. It sounds very small. That's all of our communication in the English language. Right. And the banjo playing style of Earl Scruggs is very similar. I look at it as a vocabulary. If you learn 85% of the slides, pull-offs, rolls, hammer-ons, whatever you want to call them, in the Scruggs style of playing, you can speak that language. You can play 85% of what he played. Now, he did have little what I call hooks in in certain instrumentals that maybe only played one time. And you never hear him do that again (laughs) in anything else. But the rest of the song was built of that vocabulary. And it's like speaking. And once you learn, I learned to play by listening to those songs on the LPs and going, hey, that's the same slide I'm doing on Fireball Mail. Mm-hmm. Or that's the same hammer on I'm doing on Foggy Mountain Breakdown. Or that's the same pull off I'm doing on Cumberland Gap. And I learned by association to listen to another song I never heard him play before and say, hey, he's doing that same thing. I've already learned that. So yeah. I would incorporate that in there and, and figure out what he was doing by ear. And I think that's a, a good way to learn if you can. Yeah, and then once you learn the basic vocabulary, that becomes a vehicle with which you can express build, yourself. You can build upon that yeah. with your style later on, in, you know, whatever situation you're in. Yeah, exactly. So then, so you you had these formative experiences with your, uh, what it was, your your dad's co-workers group. Right. There. A, I met those guys, and uh, that was, like I say, my early teens. I was about 14 when I started playing with them, and that turned out to be, 
my that I look forward to that Friday night. Oh, I was still in school, of course, and mm-hmm. I hated school. I couldn't wait for Friday to come. You know, I was trying mm-hmm. to learn a new instrumental or something to play with those guys to to see if I could do it. And that was that was all I dreamed of for about two or three years. I never missed a Friday night. You know, it was just the, the picking, and they were very diligent. I mean, they were they were fun to play with. And we'd go play a pig picking or something like that, yeah. just to do something different every now and then. But it was a great learning ground, like I say, to to learn their repertoire of songs that I'd never heard of. They were playing all these songs by bands I didn't know existed, so I was. Just uh, like a sponge learning all about the bands and the fiddle player in that particular band, Benny Greenhill's passed on now, but he had uh, boxes full of Bluegrass Unlimiteds, mm-hmm. older ones that he had he'd kept. He just gave them to me. And, man, I read those things cover to cover just in learning. Like I went to my first Bluegrass Festival when I was 15. I didn't know they existed. So it opened up a new world for me when I started oh, yeah. playing with those guys, and it, I just learned leaps and bounds from there. I, I assume you eventually discovered other banjo players besides Earl Scruggs, although absolutely. I know he is still kind of the your top oh, guy. Who, who were some of the other players who were really knocking you out at well, the moment? Well, at the time, and this is probably true for a lot of younger people, uh, at that age you want to learn everything you hear. You know, whatever mm-hmm. it is, uh, melodics, chromatics, uh, single string stuff, a little bit. Of, uh, like you said, for my birthday I got, I think uh, – Forty dollars or something like that. We back then there was record stores, and that was where I wanted to go. And then uh-huh. went to the bargain bins looking for bluegrass stuff, and you find uh, bluegrass greatest hits, you know. And it had the Country Gentlemen, the Stanley Brothers, and Reno and Stanley, Flat and Scruggs, and a Bill Monroe song all in one record, you know. Yeah. So it opened my eyes to all these other bands that were out here, and I started singling out the ones that I could hear the similarities of the Scruggs style in. And, and two of the first ones were the Osborne Brothers, obviously Sonny Osborne. And J.D. Crow with Jimmy Martin, the early stuff. Mm-hmm. And I said, man, who? And at, at some of those LPs, you know, they were vague in who's who's in the band or anything like that. So sure. I didn't know it was J.D. Crow even playing the banjo. But I said, this guy's got what I like, you yeah. know. And, uh, of course, I started learning and reading and, and researching who they were. And I started focusing more toward, of course, I learned some melodic and chromatic stuff. I still enjoy listening to people do that. Just I found out early in life that it didn't come as natural for me as the straight ahead stroke stuff. So I, I started uh, moving towards those kind of players that were second generation, if you want to call them that, from the Scruggs. So guys like Sonny and, and J.D., Bill Emerson, yeah. uh, Don Stover, guys like that, that were really good at, at, that, at that style and learned a lot of their stuff, you know. And then it was uh, – then eventually when you get into a band situation, you're playing a song, you say, you know, I've never played this before. I've never heard anybody play it before. How would, how would Earl play this? Or how would, what kind of pro, what would J.D. do if he were approaching this song? And, and you eventually come up with a little bit of your own style. Okay, here's where I'll maybe start putting you on the spot. Is there any sort of like really basic song or kickoff that you might be able to take us through what you hear between how Earl might play something versus... JD or or Sonny or even yourself would play. Well, I think all three of those guys and me included would pr- play pretty much the same kind of thing. I think mm-hmm. there's a big difference in say Ralph Stanley and Earl. Now sure. Earl and Ralph had uh, both played three finger style, obviously, and both came along pretty much the same time. But Ralph had his own identity like Earl did, mm-hmm. and Earl said one time I know in interviews and 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 most Scruggs style players lead with their thumb. You know the thumbs a, a powerful powerful finger out of the three that you're using there and it's something like salty dog blues he would go and he would lead with that thumb and and you or either just go you're you're really digging in with a thumb 
as your lead finger, the first one. And that's something that I do on a lot. But Stanley, now Ralph, he, he would lead with his index finger a lot. Like. And it worked for him beautifully, you know, for their style. So that was two things I had to listen to and say, man, that's totally different, but I like them both. Yeah. And uh, if, you, if you're going to play Stanley Brothers stuff, it's hard to beat Ralph. I mean, <laughs> you, you can, this, the straight-ahead stroke stuff just doesn't fit near as well. But that's two of the, the things I learned early on that you had to kind of break the styles up. And then you got some Don Reno stuff in there when you're the single-string things. And I never got into that as deep as I did the other. But, mm -hmm. uh, of course, I appreciate him now. Older I am, how hard it was to do those things that he was doing. And he had his own identity as well. Yeah. At, at what point did you start being able to play on a more professional level? What were some of your first opportunities uh, uh, with that? Well, I've been playing, like I said, in that little band that I was playing with on Friday nights, uh -huh. and that was pretty much all through my high school years. And uh, when I got to be about 17, 18, I started branching out playing with a few other people. I was getting calls locally to play, hey, come play this party we're having over here. We're going to do a thing for the co-op down the street or a VFW hall. And there was several guys that played, and uh, I was playing with a a guy named Jim Eeks, um, locally around here. He played square dances and things like that, mm -hmm. and uh, he had a good band, and he had a good following. And uh, I remember I played a square dance with him the night of my high school prom. I didn't go to that. <laughs> I played a square dance and made $40, I remember. Priorities. Yeah, exactly. But it, that's another thing, though. That was some of the first experience I had playing in front of people and yeah. playing on the stage with other musicians where you were actually playing into a microphone, not just standing in somebody's living room, you know, jamming. Yeah. So that was all important, you know, to learn how to move in and out of a mic, how to, there again, not walk all over a singer when he's singing, playing backup. And a uh, fiddle player, those square dances were I can, like you say, I can look back 30, 40 years on my life now and say, wow, that was a, we play Sally Gooden for 20 minutes, you know, and never stopped. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I look back on some of that stuff saying that really built my right hand up to where I had, you know, the the strength to, to continue to do, to play like that. You, yeah. you play Sally Gooden for 15, 20 minutes, man, to do it today would kill me. But, you know, I was 16, 17 years old. And, and the other thing was timing. When you're playing for a bunch of dancers, a lot of young people today never have that experience again, I guess. But I was playing for these older guys and ladies playing square dancing. And if mm -hmm. the timing wasn't there, if it was too fast or too slow, they were quick to say, hey, speed it up a little bit or hey, slow it down a little yeah. bit. And it lets you know, hey, these people are into timing. They're, the fiddle player had a good lick with a bow and you had to back him up on the banjo. And and I enjoyed playing backup banjo to a good fiddle player about as good as anything. I'd rather play backup behind a really good fiddle player than play a solo. Yeah, that's too. a magic combination, isn't it? It really when is. It, when it's done well. It really, it really is. Was uh, when you got hired on with Doyle, was that kind of your first like national touring type of gig? First national type, the first uh, what I would call professional band I was ever in was a band called Summer Wages out of Mount Airy, mm. North Carolina. Yes. And that came from uh, one of those, like I was just talking about a minute ago, playing local things around here. I played a, it was just a party at a, a, a convention type thing where somebody had to put a bluegrass band together and a bass player here locally named John Wade and his dad were putting a band together. And he got Rick Allred, the mandolin player, he played with the Country Gentleman, and he also had the band, he was a founding member of Summer Wages, they kind of dis disbanded at the time. So he was freelancing too. And uh, yeah. and we met at this this picking, play, just making our money playing this show. <laughs> and uh, I guess in the, in the next six months or so after that, he had kind of decided to put the band back together. Craig Smith had been the original banjo player. Oh, yeah. And uh, 
Craig has had a really lucrative business teaching lessons, man. He had, I think even at that time he had 60 or 80 students a week, which he was slammed, you know, wow, busy. Oh, yeah. That's a lot. And he wasn't interested in, in putting the band back together because he was happy doing what he was doing. And, and Rick called me to come play banjo with him. And they had a recording deal with Rebel Records. And, and I'm all of 19 years old. You know, I've never been hardly yeah. away from home, you know. And uh, so did that for about almost uh, – I guess two years, two and a half years, we traveled all over the United States and Canada and a few places like that and uh, played most of the bigger festivals. It was a lot of fun, recorded one record on Rebel. Obey your conscience, turn around, boy, and go. She's no angel, no angel, her wings are not real. She'll ruin your life if your heart she can't steal. She'll tell you a tale to bring tears to your eyes But don't you believe them cause they're only lies And that was my first time in a real recording studio yeah. kind of situation. That was a lot of a learning thing for me and... Uh, a lot of fun, and but what that job did was allow Doyle Lawson to see me play. You know, we played a lot of the same festivals out there, and and that summer wages was kind of on the way out again. A couple guys had left to do other things, and the band was kind of on getting ready to kind of disband again. And I really didn't know in life what I wanted to do. I was old enough to you know to make a decision here. Here I am, pretty yeah. much still living at home at nineteen, and uh, my dad never dissuaded me from playing music. He was always my biggest fan as far as that goes but i could tell it was it was getting to a place where he's thinking you know what's he gonna you know do in life and mm -hmm. he mentioned something about if you wanted to go to technical school or something like that and i was thinking about it and uh it was getting down to the line the nitty-gritty you're gonna have to do something here within a, a i could see that the band was getting ready to be about done and i really didn't have any prospects to speak of and <clears throat> i remember it was summertime and i was over at my brother's house which is about 20 minutes from here and the phone rang over there. Turned out it was Doyle Lawson. He was looking for me. He called the house number, and, oh, okay. my, and they gave him my brother's phone <laughs> number, and he called me down. He said, uh, I'll never forget what he said. He said, uh, I'm familiar with your banjo picking. I'm not worried about that. He said, but we're a quartet. And he said, you got to pull your weight singing. He said, I'd like for you to come up and try out for the band and just see what we sound like vocally. Wow. And uh, Was that something that you were if, doing already? I wasn't singing with anybody. Wow. In the shower and singing in the woods for yeah. the squirrels, but nobody, <laughs> I never sang with anybody to speak of to anything like that. And, uh, you know, they were a strong quartet, still uh, always were. Always are, yeah. That was, uh, he said, if you're interested, I'd like you to come try it. I said, yeah, I'd like to. So that just the door opened, you know, right there that easily. And went up there to try out. And uh, at the time, Russell Moore was playing guitar and singing lead in the band and Ray Deaton on bass. And I got to Doyle's house. And there again, I'm a green kid, never been away from home hardly. And I threw my banjo case down and flipped the latches on it. And Doyle said, Doyle and Russell were standing there. Doyle had his mandolin out and, and Russell had his guitar out. And I was getting ready to get my banjo out. And he said, uh, hey, hang on there, son. He said, uh, let's let's sing one. He'd give me eight songs to learn backwards and forwards off of a new record. I had to go buy the, I didn't even have, it was the latest record they had out, so I had to go get it. He said he wanted me to learn the kickoffs, the singing, the, the breaks, the everything, you know, on the record. So I had them down. It took me about a week and a half to get it. And then I went up there for the, the tryout. And 
And uh, so I'm getting my banjo out of the case. He said, hang on, son. He said, uh, he said, come on up here and let's just sing the chorus and see how things go. So they, he did a little break on the mandolin and leads into the chorus, and uh-huh. I started singing. And no microphone or anything. We're just standing in, in yeah. his office kind of area. And uh, I just remember, I remember I came home. My dad was living. I told my dad, I said, my God, they don't even need microphones as loud as I, I couldn't get over how powerful they sing. Oh, yeah. And you really have to, when you're singing with people like that, that caliber, you have to push into it. You hear about people talking about singing from their diaphragm. If you really don't understand, you can sing from your throat. You can sing through your nose, through all those kind of places. But if you're going to sing with a group like that, you really have to push from your inside your diaphragm to, to blend. Yeah. And they taught me to do that really within a few months. And But I remember looking at Russell and, and, and Doyle's face, and they both were smiling when we got done with that. And then that was pretty much it. I mean, I, didn't, I don't think I heard him play the banjo to amount to anything for the, the tryout. <laughs> they just wanted to hear the vocals, you know, and it worked out. It was a good blend. There were mountain trails and highways, but they never let me no place. And I never really cared to there was you. There were sunny days and dark clouds There were nights that I cried out loud But no one ever heard till there was you Now there's you, you've opened up my eyes Now there's you, you brought new meaning to my life I was down, you picked me up When I was feeling blue, now life's so full Cause now there's you Oh, that's great. So just talk in general about things that maybe you learned working with that band. That oh, was, it, it was uh, just unbelievably a, a great place to learn if you're a young man wanting to learn to play bluegrass music. Doyle's a great teacher, but the whole band was. I learned a lot from Russell and Ray. I mean, they helped me sing, and, and uh, you know, I would set up nights. Russell and Ray both drove, of course, Doyle did too. I wasn't old enough to drive. You had to be 25 to be on the insurance for the bus, but I had uh-huh. to ride shotgun. Doyle wouldn't let anybody uh, drive without a shotgun rider, and, yeah. uh, you know, for fear of going to sleep or something sure, like sure. that. And that became my number one job at, at night after the picking was done. I'd stay up all night and ride shotgun, yeah. you know, so I'd sit up there with a banjo and play. And uh, Russell and I, would he would sing stuff and I would play and it, I learned a lot there. But Doyle really was a wonderful teacher. He knew the rudiments of of banjo. Of course, he played with some of the greatest banjo players in, in the world, J.D. Crow and Bill Emerson, just to mention, too. Yeah. And he, he was a good banjo player himself. Matter of fact, the first job he had with Jimmy Martin was playing banjo. Right. So he was rusty. He hadn't played in a long time, but he still knew how to do it. I mean, and I mean, like Bear Tracks, I remember. I didn't even know how to tune for that. But he, he uh-huh. showed me that in five seconds, you know, figured out how to, to get the rudiments of it. But... uh but uh, besides banjo playing, Doyle was a great teacher of the band situation itself as far as singing, uh, tempos, timing, all that kind of stuff, and, and, and playing as a unit, not trying to just be a, a hot shot playing your own thing, you know, and I really learned that more than anything there. Folks, we are in a golden age of online instrument instruction, and at the top of that world is Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation has streaming video courses in banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, dobro, upright bass, and ukulele, so you can learn bluegrass, old time, and plenty of other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in all of Roots music. Check out the courses they have and this is just for banjo you could get beginning or bluegrass banjo with bill evans 
Clawhammer banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward-style banjo with Bruce Molsky, the banjo according to Danny Barnes, and contemporary bluegrass banjo with Wes Corbett. Each of those courses include high-quality video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. And the best thing yet is you're going to get your first month free just by being a listener of this show. So go to pegheadnation.com and use promo code PICKYFINGERS at checkout and claim your free month of the best instruction out there. And if you find yourself needing a banjo or accessories to get ready for those Peghead Nation courses, I highly recommend you check out Elderly Instruments, which is the world's most trusted source of new used and vintage stringed instruments, including banjos, guitars, violins, mandolins, ukuleles, all that stuff. They're going to have the best instruments you can find anywhere. And we're talking everything from the more affordable instruments for people starting out on up through the most highly sought after vintage instruments. Elderly Instruments has been family owned since 1972. And if you can't make it to their Lansing, Michigan showroom, you can see their full selection at elderly.com or give them a call at 517-372-7880 for some professional advice on all of your banjo and other stringed instrument needs. And you know what all these stringed instruments have in common? They all sound better with GHS Strings. GHS Strings is another sponsor of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast, and I'm proud to say they have been made in Battle Creek, Michigan since 1974. And if you don't want to take my word for it, maybe you'll believe such people as J.D. Crow, Sonny Osborne, and Bela Fleck, just a few of the many, many users of GHS Strings. So go check them out, ghsstrings.com. They have a wide selection of gauged sets so that no matter what you're looking for, you'll be able to find something there. Let's talk a bit more about like your personal style. You seem like such a complete, uh, some uh, people might say, you know, borderline flawless bluegrass oh, banjo player. No, so, there's lots of flaws in there. I, just, I, I imagine... <laughs> I imagine you hear them. You're, we're all our own worst critics, but um, you know, people think highly of your playing, and I'm hoping we can maybe just go through some aspects and talk about how you look at those things and and how you work well, on them. I I have to give all the credit to Earl Scruggs. Really, that was he was my hero. Still is my musical hero. I don't worship any man, but he was my musical hero. And I think if JD and Sonny were here, they would tell you the same thing. He his playing was just about perfect from the start as far as clarity, timing, tone, all those things just can't be beat. His, uh, If you go back and look at videos, well, of course, I didn't have any of those growing up. None of that stuff was out yet. The the videos you sure. can buy today, the, the DVDs and such, where you can see them playing in their prime. And Man, if you just watch his left hand and his right hand, the economy of motion the guy used, he was... He basically, I won't say he invented the three-finger style, but he absolutely perfected it. I mean, back yeah. then, you can't better what he did. I remember learning, you can play the same note on a banjo fingerboard in three or four different places, but I remember getting a certain lick. I would be playing it in five frets, and I would see somebody else doing They were doing it in three frets. I was working myself to death. You know, Earl got it right from the start. Yeah. I mean, he knew how to do that from the very start, and uh if you can, uh, that was my goal was just to be able to play clean and clear, play good timing and good melody. I always appreciated the melody of the yeah. song. Yeah, that's absolutely something that that you are 
are strong with. So you had that model in Earl, but how did you, how did you actually work to get that timing for yourself? Just working with those kind of guys. You know, I, I'm a strong believer in, uh, when I say those kind of guys, people that come from that same school of music. I, I'm a firm believer that there's all kinds of great musicians throughout this world that play, and they have different backgrounds. They have different heroes, if you will, growing up mm-hmm. playing. Mine were always the traditional cats, uh, the Flatt and Scruggs, the Stanley Brothers, Bill Monroe's early bands, and and... It just so happened the bands that I went to work for, Doyle Austin and Ricky Skaggs, also came from that same school of music, if you will. So it was a simple thing for me to work for Doyle Austin because he was from the Bill Monroe, Jimmy Martin school. And man, I I grew up with that same thing. And and then when I went to work for Ricky Skaggs later on, Ricky couldn't come up with, he could come up with some obscure Stanley Brothers song that nobody else in the band had ever heard. And Mm -hmm. I would know it, you know, it was one of those kind of things I grew up with it. And therefore we had that kinship and uh, it was easy for me to to fall into place there rather than trying to learn, you know, and also the same thing holds true with a new song that somebody just written. Like say you, you have a mindset of how you're going to attempt to play this song that you've never heard before. Nobody's ever played before. Somebody's just written it. It's a brand new song, but I still had that traditional kind of feel in my playing. Yeah. I have a feeling that you've been at this from such a young age that it might just be ingrained, but is there is there a way that you think about drive and timing in terms of when you listen to whether it's Ricky or Doyle playing playing mandolin and the rhythm guitar player and the interaction that you have with those instruments? I do. I think you're right. You, you hit on a good word there, ingrained. <clears throat> I, I fully feel, and then there again, everybody has their opinion, but Timing is such a subjective word. You know, hear somebody and drive. You hear those two words sure. kind of put together in, in a lot of sentences. People talk about it, oh, his timing or his drive is such and such. And I look at it this way. I'll just be honest. I, everybody has, like I say, their own opinion. If you look at timing as a, a metronomic time, a meter that stands straight up at 12 o'clock being right on the mark, that's mm-hmm. metronomic perfect timing. If you're on that beat every time right at the center line, right at the 12 o'clock, that's metronomic perfect time. If you're anything behind it or ahead of it, it's it's not so-called metronomic time, I wouldn't think. But there's some players that play just slightly behind it. They have kind of a loping beat. They're not out of time. They're not they're not dragging, but they they're not right on the beat. And then there's certain guys that play what sounds like slightly ahead of that that twelve o'clock meter, but they're not speeding. They're just they're on the other side of it, kind of pushing all the time. Mm-hmm. That's where my ear hears. And I and I hear that in, in people like Earl Scruggs is playing. Not that he's speeding. He's just not. Uh, now, metronomic, perfect metronomic time, what I call it anyway, would be, I hear that in guys like Bela. Bela exactly. plays a, more of that. Uh, Noam Pekelty, Ron Block, those guys play perfect metronomic time. And they're, they're good at it. I mean, it's just where they hear. I think it's where your ear... Maybe it's from your uh, people you grew up listening to more so than than what I grew up listening to. I don't know. We, I'm sure we had some of the same influences, but it's yeah. uh, it's the way you hear. I don't think you can really train yourself too much in that regard. I think it's timing is one of those things that I feel thing, and I feel right on the that pushing other side. You know. Do you think that you never have to think about it? Is it something that you're not conscious of? Not like conscious I, I got to really. Get in front of this just a little bit. I don't think about it. If I thought about it, I'd probably mess up. It's one of those kind of, it's like breathing to me, you know. But I have, I have sat down and and listened intently to other players and I've come 
when I was younger, I didn't think about any of that stuff. You just play. But I have in, in recent years, like I say, you can look back 20 or 30 years and say, I do play somewhat different than that person or he plays somewhat different than me. And I think that's what it is. It's where you particularly hear that mark. And mine was always on the just on the front side. What about speed? All this timing and clarity and, and melody-driven approach, you are somehow able to still maintain that, you know, I've heard some of your recordings that must be like yeah. 180 BPM or something. Well, I, when I played for Ricky Skaggs, he liked to play fast yeah. stuff and the crowd <laughs> likes that stuff. You know, it's fun. You're picking the pen and some of those songs that yeah. are just cooking, you know. And I'll be honest, uh, the really, really super fast stuff doesn't appeal to me as much as a mid-tempo. I'm going to settle down by Flat and Scruggs. It's kind uh -huh. of my, my favorite tempo. But hey, when you work for somebody and they want to play something, you play it, you know. And uh, I never really considered speed something that I tried to strive for, really. Or I would uh, go to the record table at night after we played the show and somebody would come and say, man, you're the fastest banjo player. Uh -huh. I, I, I never really took that as a compliment, to be honest with you. And I didn't mean anything by that. But Or if I had a young person come up to me and say, how do I develop more speed? I, I can play, but I'm really, I'm really struggling playing with speed. And my advice to that person would be, Keep doing what you're doing and strive for clarity, tone, separation in your notes, and the speed will come. It's a lot like being an athlete. I tell them, you know, a guy that runs a 60-yard dash every day, three times a day, is going to be better than a guy that does it once a month, you know. Sure. And, if, and I was playing so much at that time, you know, with those bands, you're playing five, six days a week. So speed come, it just comes naturally. You know? Did you ever have issues with tension in Never your did. shoulder or wrist or anything? Never did. I, I know a lot of my friends, uh, pro players, had uh, a lot of problems with with their hands, carpal tunnel and that kind of thing, yeah. and uh, focal dystonia, those kind of right. problems with your right hand. I'm thankful I never never did. You, you kind of alluded to this just a minute ago, but uh, on the other end of the speed spectrum, we have slower tunes. Like I think a perfect example is your recording of John Henry. Such a deep groove, but your your timing is just as solid on the slow one as it is. That's it? some of my favorite tempo. That's kind of the mid tempo I yeah. would call it. And uh, now, when some of the hardest things to play are even slower than that, and and, and Scruggs was a master of that stuff, like three quarter time things. Sure. To really get that and play it right and play it in a groove, uh, he was a master at that. And I really, when you listen to to, to some of the flattened scrugs, some of the Monroe stuff in three-quarter timing and trying to play a solid role to that is uh, is a, one of the tougher things there is. Are there any examples you can think of? Let's of, see. Uh... Just to play, you know, the, yeah. the melody and keep everything solid. But it's... Uh, all the good times are past and gone and some of those kind of things, just uh, tough, tough tunes to play. But Earl was 
just as natural on any of that stuff as any. He could play wide open or slow it down, and that's what I kind of strive for. Yeah. Let's talk about pull-offs. You definitely seem to come from like a J.D. Crow school of of pull-offs, but I, I think you maybe even have it at a at another level of like that clarity and, and precision. So t- talk about how you accomplish that and how you approach those. Well, it's one of those kind of things. Again, I never really thought about it. <laughs> I'm a terrible tech, a technical player. I, I don't think about a lot of that stuff. And if you asked me to explain how I do it, I would be at a, at a loss to tell you, honestly. Yeah. But I think I was put in situations and in bands that had great players. Like, uh, for example, like you say, Doyle Lawson had played with Bill Emerson was one of the best pull-off guys ever. I think mm-hmm. in his the Country Gentleman days was when I listened to the most of the recordings that Bill did. He was one of the greatest guys with pull-offs ever. Uh, Crow, J.D. Crow, of course. Earl Scruggs was great. But when I went to work for Doyle Lawson, there again, I was very young, and Terry Bauckham had been the banjo player. <clears throat> and Scott Vestal, I took Scott Vestal's place in the band. Both those guys were kind of in a mold. Balkum was one of the best pull-off, still is one of the best pull-off players there is. And if you're emulating those records, you kind of emulate that style, you know. Yeah. So that was a natural thing for me to listen to and to do, and it just came. We, we're both from that same school, though. You know, he's a North Carolina guy, and yeah. uh, he listened to Scruggs and Crow and grew up kind of the same way I did. So it was a... As natural as breathing for me. I just didn't think about it a lot, but I can see how now looking back again, like you say, you can look back 20 or 30 years, you can say, well, it was natural for me to play that way. I was playing Julianne every night. You know, that's <laughs> the way he played it, you know. Do you, th- this is a classic uh, Masters of the Five String Banjo question <laughs> yeah. for you here. Uh, do you have a recording that you feel is the best example of your banjo playing and why? Oh, man, that's a tough one. Uh, the three solo things I did, I think, are I'd be hard to pick between. I guess if I had to pick one of the three, probably Bound to Ride record. That entire record was fun because, you know, I got to play. I look back at a lot of things. I'm a deep thinker. Sometimes I just sit down in peace and quiet and think, you know, why why was J.D. Crow one of my favorites? And I look back at the material that the guy played on and even the stuff that he didn't have any control over. He worked for Jimmy Martin. He had to play what Jimmy told him to play mm-hmm. and what Jimmy came up with. And But he happened to be there at a particular time in the 50s and 60s when was wonderful material for the banjo, walking shoes and stuff like I mean, just great. Honey, you don't know my mind. Of course, he didn't play, I don't think, on the original walking shoes. But, uh, honey, you don't know my mind. All these just don't give your heart to rambler. All these great songs that really fit a banjo wonderfully. And awesome. He was he was mixed in the mix on the records in a great way. You could always yeah. hear the banjo. It was never, you know, mixed down in the mix. And I think later when, when Crow had the ability – I look back at all my favorite banjo players from Earl Scruggs, J.D. Crow, Sonny Osborne, and from an early point in their life, they had control over what they were playing. For example, mm-hmm. Earl Scruggs had control over if he said uh, him and Lester sitting down there talking about, you know, I don't like this song or I like this song, let's cut this one. Earl knew what he could do and what he couldn't do on the banjo, so they all were banjo-friendly, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then Sonny Osborne, when the Osborne brothers started their thing, he had control basically to say – you know, this is a great song for banjo, and I like it. Whether slow or fast, that doesn't matter. But 
it was a banjo friendly song. It was a way to focus on their strengths. It, exactly. And uh and I think that's one reason when I got to do my solo things, I I naturally automatically without even thinking about it picked very strong banjo tunes that that, that showcase the banjo to some uh. degree. So it was it was fun because people would come up and say, "Man, that's uh, one of my favorite records." Whatever what they were saying, they didn't realize I could play anything outside of what I'd been playing with these bands. And my whole, <laughs> you know, these other songs were were totally different. And uh, so there, that Bound to Ride record probably I think because I had held a lot of those songs for several years prior to recording, it's tough to come up with a second record with as good of songs as the first one because you've been hanging on to them, you know, for ten years or whatever. Right, right. Then then you're under yeah a little. A little more time Tough pressure to, to, to come, come up, up with the tunes. Yeah, right. for sure. Uh, and now I'll turn it around and ask sort of a different kind of question. I, I mentioned how we're all our own worst critics. Oh, yeah. Is there anything that bothers you about your playing or maybe some sort of skill that you always wanted to master but never ended up being very comfortable with? I can't really think of anything that bothered me other than I think uh, really good musicians are never happy. Mm -hmm. uh, it comes down to you're at the last day. You've got to, to finish this record up. You've got to mix. You've got to go back on the road with the band you're playing with. Uh -huh. And you have to come to where you say, this is it. I'm going to have to sign off on it. But I could always go back and say, man, I could do that better. You know, it's one of those kind of things. I don't think I've ever been 100% happy with anything I played. Right. But like you said, I think that's the mark of a You have to. You have to. And I think that's good true. Good professional. You, yeah. you have to do that whether you're a singer, a player, whatever. You can't just go and do it 100 times. You know, it's one of those kind of things where you you cut it. That was a good lesson in life for me, too. You ask about working with Doyle Austin when I was so young. Doyle had a cool thing in the studio. We would work up songs on the road sometimes and do them live in front of people before we recorded them. And uh, nine times out of ten, we had, we had already played these songs live and pretty much had things set the way we were going to record them before we ever went to the studio. But sometimes, <clears throat> last minute, you get a song in and we hadn't had time to work up. And he pretty much had a rule of thumb. If you went over it three times in the studio and didn't get it, he'd say, let's move on. Let's just, mm. let's just move on to something. Wow. We're, not, we're not ready to cut it yet. And and that's a good way of looking at it because if you continue to beat that dead horse and continue to play in the you're in the eighth take here now, you lose some feel for it. You lose some drive. You lose some of that rawness that you had in the first or second Absolutely. take. Absolutely. And that's that was a good training ground for me later on in life recording where I would say, hey, let's just move on to something else or to call that one all together. We'll we'll do something else. We're not ready to record it yet. Something I love about the Hydehead Blues album is the emphasis placed on capturing the tones of those special instruments. wondering if you had a certain type of microphone or recording setup that you really uh, try to use to, to do yeah, that. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. That was a, a, a wonderful opportunity to get to record a record like that. It was almost like a, a banjo documentary, you know, mm -hmm. to get to play four or five original flathead five-string master tones. Uh, record companies today couldn't allow a budget to do something like that <laughs> now in a booklet to show all the banjos yeah. and which ones are on which songs and that kind of thing. As far as recording... There again, I'm technically poor as can be when it comes to talking about, you know, I know a few microphones we use, but the setup as far as recording each banjo was pretty much the same. Same mic, same setup, just different banjos for different songs. And uh, I think uh, most of those were covered with a Neumann, 
I'd have to look that back up. I, I can't remember exactly, but they were Norman mics. I remember they had a bunch of them. There's was two. it just one on the banjo? No, or it no he generally puts one about midway of the fingerboard and one he would position on the head uh, to get get set down in front of it and kind of figure out what, where the sweet spot was on that yeah. particular banjo. Right. But he would uh, and then blend the two, but it was, it was great. Very nice. Worked out. Uh, well, that's a good segue. Let's talk about your your banjo. You're holding your famous Mac Crow instrument. Yeah. Would you would you consider this your your main instrument? I, I assume I would consider it my Desert Island banjo. Like I said, I've owned over 400 pre-war Gibson banjos and several original Flatheads, probably several dozen. And uh, for whatever reason, this one just suits me. It doesn't suit everybody. It's just like uh, it just uh, every time I pick it up, it feels like an old friend, like the best pair of shoes you ever put on. I mean, they're just it's comfortable, you know. Well, I still have a whole bunch of questions about pre-war banjos in general, but maybe take us, since this is your personal favorite, maybe take us through what exactly it is, where you found it, and then if you have other preferences, such as your picks or strings or bridges and yeah, just uh, you know, all that stuff, stuff that banjo players like to ask about. I'm not a real, there again, not a real technical guy. I'm not a guy that's uh, hung up on changing different types of bridges or strings every week mm-hmm. when something new comes out. I've a, if it, I'm a, I'm the guy that if it didn't broke, don't fix it kind of yeah. guy. So <laughs> I like, I like uh weather King, Remo weather King heads. I like, uh, I have experimented with a few bridges here lately and Richie Dotson has been building a bridge we worked on together for me and I really like it a lot but prior to that I was using Snuffy Smith bridges and yeah. and I even used some old Grover bridges from time to time from the 50s and 60s so <laughs> that kind of thing but uh, concerning Matt Crow if a lot of people listening don't know who Matt Crow was he was uh, one of the pioneers of the three finger style here in North Carolina matter of fact he's listed as one of the influences in Earl Scruggs' book uh, back oh. when Earl was a kid he was uh, he was listening to him on radio and, and seeing him live and that kind of thing and Matt Crow was a three finger style player he played mostly he played all the old time stuff that we're used to hearing, Sally Good and Sally Ann and those things. And I've heard some recordings where he was kind of dabbling in some of the Tin Pan Alley stuff, like five foot two stuff oh, wow. that, that Don Reno would cut later on, you know, uh-huh. and those kind of things. And and uh, they had a Gibson endorsement. He played in two or three different bands here in North Carolina, and he won a bunch of banjo championships and that kind of thing. But uh, this particular banjo is kind of an oddity. For a long time, we didn't think there was another one like it. Nobody had ever seen a gold-plated RB-75. It's right. listed in the shipping ledgers as an RB-75. And uh, standard catalog description of an RB-75 is mahogany woods and nickel-plated metal parts. And this one has got gold-plated metal parts with mm-hmm. engraved, certain parts of it are engraved from different model banjos like a Granada and a Bella Voce and a Style 6 and a couple other things. And uh, this was at a period that this banjo shipped out in June of 1940. And that was approaching wartime pretty much and sure. you hear the term floor sweep kind of thing go yeah. around in the in the factory at, at gibson and kalamazoo michigan they were they had uh limitation orders put on them for the war effort was building up and they were uh metals and, and certain things that went into banjos was not being reproduced that much and gibson couldn't get them so they were having to kind of put together things out of what they had <laughs> available but I don't think this one's so much a floor sweep as it was they had some spare parts and i was told that matt crow wanted a gold-plated Master tone was all he asked for. You know, it wasn't okay. the, he didn't know the different styles and that kind of thing. He just wanted a gold plated master tone. With the time, the only catalog standard gold plated master tone would have been the RB18 Top Tension. They had discontinued the Granada and all those in 1937. Oh, okay. And uh, 
they had uh, some gold parts that were laying around, and they put him together a banjo. But come to find out, there are a few more that we know of. That really? There was a, a, a three that turned up on eBay years ago I saw that was original factory gold-plated. And I know of another banjo real close to this banjo out of the same batch. So uh, Gibson generally made things in batches. So there's not a lot of them that's turned up. That's really the only probably two or three of these existing. And have you encountered any of those other ones in person to compare? Not in, not in person. Okay. Never have. I've seen, see seen some pictures of them, but not not uh, in person. And uh, maybe a brief story about how how you came into this one and what you hear in the sound of this that made it your, uh, you know, of all the choices that you would sure, potentially have had, sure. what, what makes this your number one? Well, a, f a friend of mine had told me about a gold-plated, he called it a gold-plated RB3 existing down close to, to where he was from, and I just thought he was mistaken. I said, they never made anything like that. And, you know, gold <laughs> RB3s are nickel-plated, you know. And uh, I was working for Ricky Skaggs, just I hadn't been working for him very long at all, and we played really close to where this badger was supposed to be. My wife was with me. We drove down, and... Uh, I said, well, let's go see if we can find that thing. So we just started driving around. This is pre-internet and GPS and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> so you're digging around and phone numbers and trying to find stuff on a map and got the phone number. I didn't realize the fellow that had owned it had passed away several years prior. And his wife answered the phone and I asked, told him who I was and I was interested in the banjo and she said that he'd passed away. I said, well, I'm sorry to hear that and uh, told her we were playing close by and I would love to see the banjo for some way possible. So she let me come look at it and she was super nice and, uh, and the banjo was in pretty rough condition. I'll be honest with you. The frets were worn really, really bad, about as bad as you can get them. He enjoyed playing it for a long time without a lot of maintenance, which a lot of guys did back then. Yeah. And uh, I, I knew, I told my wife when I wrapped my hand around the neck, I said, it's the best neck I've ever, it's, it's not for everybody, it's fine. It's really a V taper to yeah. it. Uh, the width of the fingerboard and all is pretty much standard, but the, the neck itself tapers. Uh, only had two or three like this. I bet the same guy probably cut the neck on them, but- Long story short, uh, she let me take the banjo home and kind of set it up and play it, but I couldn't talk her into selling it. It was one of those kind of things. She just wasn't ready to part with it. Yeah. And she had a couple boys and, and you know, it was daddy's banjo and that kind of thing, which I understand. And uh, I respected that. But I would check in with her every six months or so to see, you know, <laughs> take if, there the was, temperature. if there was anything, you know, if she might be interested in selling. And for a long time, it was just, it went on like that for a year or two. And uh, she was in her seventies, I believe then. And of course, a widow. And uh, I got a card in the mail. This was the oddest thing. And um, it was inviting me to her wedding. She was getting married. She had met a gentleman in church. Mm -hmm. And she was a very religious lady. And uh, she had met a gentleman in church. And they had decided to get married. His wife had passed away. And they'd known each other for a long time. And in the card, in the invitation, she said, by the way, he's a musician too. And I said, well, cool. So I was traveling through there a month or two later. They'd already gotten married. I couldn't go. I was on the road playing with Ricky Skaggs. And, and I stopped by to meet him and see her. And like I say, we've been going back and forth. I was trying to buy the banjo for years. And I played. It turned out the guy was a Chet Atkins-style guitar player. So we had a lot in common. We yeah. sat down and played two or three tunes together. And it was real nice to get together. And I got ready to go. I had to leave. And he said, why don't you sell that boy that banjo? She said, it didn't do anybody any good. And she said, okay. And that was all it was to All right. And, I bought it and I've been playing it ever since. That was about 25 years ago. It's quite so, an assist you got yeah. from, uh, well, from the new guy. Well, it's just one of those things worked out the way it's supposed to. You know, it's a great thing. It's been a blessing for me. I've played it all over the world and a lot of records with it. And it's a, it's a cool old banjo. I was told that Earl Scruggs tried to buy it from the gentleman that owned it prior oh, really? to me back in the 50s. And I got a chance to ask Earl about that at the Ryman Auditorium when we were doing a PBS documentary thing. And Earl was part of the the, the thing on TV, and uh, we were 
doing sound check, I think. And he was just sitting out there on the stool. Nobody's in the crowd, of course. We're doing sound check about four o'clock in the afternoon. And guys were moving cables and mic stands around. And I saw him just sitting out there by himself. Mm-hmm. And I just got in the banjo and I said, I'm going to ask him, you know, if he remembers this banjo. So I caught him at a good time. Nobody was around. I said, Earl, I said, they tell me that you might have tried to buy this banjo back in the 50s sometime. I said, you remember anything about it? And I handed it to him and he looked at it. And man, he said, belong to a railroad man, Statesville, <laughs> North Carolina. Came out of Statesville, North Carolina. And uh, I couldn't believe it. He, he remembered this he banjo remembered 50 it. some years later. He Incredible. Rem- he had a mind like a steel trap when he came to banjos for sure. And I, <laughs> I found all the banjos I've been looking for all my life and tracking down. I think I had found something nobody knew about. And either Earl Scruggs or Don Reno had already seen them and tried to bought them 50 years prior to that. So they, <laughs> they had a, a good eye back then. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you do now, apparently. To, to <laughs> They're getting tougher to find. Go snatch the really ones are. up that they already <laughs> identified. That's, They're getting that's tough, tougher to find these days, seems like. Do you feel like uh, playing anything on it? I, I, oh, I'm rusty here, sitting here, but I'll, I'll pick something on it. I guess. Let's see. Oh yeah, I, I, see. I can't let you just sit there with it and not get to hear it. all humped up in the chair here about got my arm oh yeah well it's it's a beautiful sound no doubt about it thank you it's been a good one are you in the mood to talk about pre-war stuff in general sure it's what i eat breathe and sleep yeah I, i had a feeling uh so tell me about when you realized that these old gibson flatheads were really something special that you needed to maybe pay a little more attention to well if you if you're a a deep bluegrass musician you whether you play guitar mandolin or banjo you quickly understand that you, if you, I was always a, a student of history, I guess, if you want to put it that way. I, whatever I was into, I wanted to know everything I can know about. It. And I've been that way since I was a kid. I mean, with bicycles and skateboards, I wanted to know everything I could find out about them. When I got into music serious, I started researching, hey, what kind of banjo did Earl Scruggs play, for example? And then you branch out and say, what kind of banjo did Don Reno play? You know, what kind of banjo did J.D. Crow play? What kind of banjo did Sonny Austin play? And it all came back to pre-war Gibson banjos, flatheads uh-huh. in particular. <clears throat> the only guy pretty much in that circle of, of people at that time playing, he was playing a pre-war Gibson banjo, but the only guy that wasn't playing a flathead was Ralph Stanley. Sure. He played a raised head or an arch top, as some people call it today, and he had his own sound because of that. But uh, it seemed like the, most of the guys that I wanted to emulate in the Scruggs-style sound played a flathead pre-war Gibson master tone type banjo. And from there, you uh, you dig deeper and you find out things. You talk to these old cats and you see people at festivals and shows and you say, uh-huh. wow, he's he's playing old master tone too. And then, like I said, the same thing holds true for guitar players or mandolin players. Uh, pre-war Martin D28s and D18s are the preeminent bluegrass guitar. Uh, Lloyd Lohr F5 style sure. mandolins are the, because Bill Monroe played one. So it's uh, it's no different than anything. It's the same thing in rock and roll music or anything else. Whatever kind of electric guitar Eric Clapton's playing is what everybody yeah, wants to get. yeah. But hearing and reading them and knowing that they play that is a bit different than truly understanding or hearing for yourself what they heard. Was there was there a time that you had one in your hands oh, and, yeah. and were really like, oh, now I see what it's I about. remember the first time I ever played a really legit, all original flathead five string master tone. It was a boon for me, basically. I was about 15 years old, just getting consumed with this music yeah. and everything about it that I could learn. And a, a guy named Harry West moved right here to my hometown he's 20 minutes from here at the time he's passed on now but 
Harry West is kind of the grand old man of vintage instruments in general. He was a uh, he was well known in New York and throughout the country. That's where he, he was at. He was in New York at the time from fifties and sixties. Prior to people like George Gruen and all the people that we know of today, yeah. Harry West was a, an inspiration to those guys. He was one of the earliest guys to recognize that the pre-war instruments was the golden period, basically, of Martin guitars, Gibson mandolins, and Gibson banjos. And he started collecting these things back in the 40s and 50s right after the war. Wow. And I asked him one time, I was just a dumb kid. I mean, he he took a liking to me. I mean, I would go over there and play with him and his wife, Jeannie. And, and <clears throat> when I was out of school in the summertime, we'd go play shows. I was just a teenager, you know, and he played mandolin. He played a Lloyd Lowry F5, and she had a D45 Martin, original pre-war <laughs> D45. Oh and he also had an original five-string flathead RB3 wreath pattern, which is even rarer than a standard RB3. It had a wreath inlay pattern yeah. from the factory. And uh, he would let me play that. But I remember the first time I got to play it, he was notorious for He was a gold star dealer. You know, the, the Asian made Gibson banjos, and they were good banjos. But he was a dealer for them. And if he didn't know you when you first came in to meet him, he would start pulling out all the, the gold star stuff and and that kind of thing before he would show you anything, the, the older stuff. Yeah. And my dad and I went over there. I didn't even have a driver's license. I was like 15. And he saw I got around on all those other banjos that he brought out. So then he brings out this big, heavy, flathead, five-string, right. original RB3. And he let me play it. But I remember thinking, my God, my dad even said it sounded like it was coming out of the ground. It just had that growling big bottom end sound and wow. crack it and pop when you want it to. And uh, that was really my first time to get to play a legit flathead five string. And it, it ruined me from then on, you know, I knew what, I knew what the sound, I knew what the sound was then, you yeah. know, and you can kind of compare everything to that. And then I started digging deeper and then learning more as I went along. And like any collector of anything, whether it's art or furniture or cars or whatever you're into, you you get in a mode of trading up. You get the best you can afford, and you play that for a while, and then you see something better, and you trade up to that, and you get the best, and that's how you get to to learn. You know, yeah. these things. Are you able to describe or e even demonstrate, if there's a way to do that, what what you think a great pre-war flathead can do that maybe even a really high quality modern banjo just can't do? It's tough to say they're building great modern banjos today. Yeah. I will say probably the best in my lifetime are being built today. They're going back to a lot of the practices that they were using in the 20s and 30s as far sure. as stuff like the hide glue and nitrocellulose finish and things that they were using. And they're they're good, but <clears throat> I honestly believe, uh, there again, I'm not the most technical person at all, but I've sat down and thought about, you know, what's the difference in a pre-war instrument compared to a new one? They've got all this technology they've spent tens of thousands of dollars studying metallurgy. They, uh, they're they using the old practices of making the wood rims and the resonators and high glue and the whole nine yards. But I think pretty much the metal parts on a the banjo, they've pretty much figured out, and they're about as close as humanly possible. I think the one thing they can't really reproduce is wood. That's the one mm -hmm. thing that, that I think wood that, that Gibson and Martin and companies like that had access to back then is so hard to come by today that we won't live long enough to see forest of wood like that again. It yeah. was it was the old growth. You hear that term thrown around, but the virgin timber, we're talking trees, maple trees, especially for banjos or wood rims and resonators. These trees were 85, 90, 100 years old when these when they were cut and they were air dried. Today they do a lot of kiln drying where you can cut a tree down last week and this week you're making a guitar out of it, you know. So they, they'd air dried stuff for many years before uh -huh. they would use it. And I feel like that's a big part of the sound. But you ask, well, what's the difference in the sound of an old one as opposed to a new one? It's hard to sum up with words, but if I had to 
to use one word, especially in banjos, a, an old banjo has a mature sound. You can just mm-hmm. hear they they don't have a lot of overtones. They they don't they're not excessively ringy. Uh, the notes have separation. Yeah. Uh, every banjo player I ever met that played the style that I play loves a big, heavy, powerful four string. You know, some that'll rattle your teeth. A lot of modern stuff doesn't have have that, you know. And uh, but I also like one that'll crack, and you know, you get after it. It'll it, it's got the high end and low end and the mids, everything you're looking for. Not too much of one. And the separation is a big thing. This particular banjo, the Mac Crow banjo, doesn't have a lot of overtones at all. It, it reminds me of. Uh, I guess that's one thing I like about it. it records really well, mm-hmm. but uh, it, it doesn't have a lot of overtones to the point it's almost like a jackhammer, like that original recording of Foggy Mountain Breakdown. I guess that's uh-huh. what drew me to that because you can play fast or slow, and it still has that separation. Yeah, very, very cool. Do you have a favorite story about banjo hunting, or maybe recall a certain time that you had to go to great lengths to to track down a banjo for your oh, business God. or for there's yourself? So many of them, I couldn't, <laughs> half the stories you can't tell, but yeah, there's other, they were just crazy. I had one one time, I won't mention any names, but it was a another banjo dealer, friend of mine. I mean, all these cats I've known for years and yeah. this is a good friend of mine. And I had been trying to buy this particular banjo. There again, I won't say names of anything. Original flathead, five string, the best of the best. I'd been trying to buy it for like three years. Hmm. And I'd finally talked this guy into meeting me at a Hardee's parking lot of all places. The guy was real wily. I mean, he didn't want anybody to know. He didn't want you to go to his house because he's afraid somebody would break in and steal it and that kind of thing. So we had, uh, first time I ever saw it, I take that back. First, this same banjo, the first time he ever let me see it, the owner, met me in a car a car wash bay. I had to meet him at a car wash. This was a little rural town. Met him at a car wash. He pulled it out on the trunk of the car. I got to look at it. Determined it was what I thought it was, and I wanted it. Then we went to talking back and forth for a year or two before he would let me see it again. And next time was in a grocery store parking lot. And on the back <laughs> of a tailgate of a pickup truck, I got to look at it and tear it down and make sure it was original. Uh-huh. And then put it back together, and I didn't get to see it again for another year. So now we're getting hot and heavy on possibly me buying the banjo. So we agreed to meet at a Hardee's parking lot. Man, I'm I'm all excited. I'm nervous. I got my money with me, and I'm hoping we can do business on this thing. I'm, I'm trying to get it to play it and enjoy it. And in comes this dealer friend of mine who basically does the same thing I do. Oh, a third person. The third person pulls in the parking lot five minutes before we're supposed to meet to do business on the banjo. And my brain's going a million miles, and I was thinking – What's going on here? We're going to get in a bidding war here. Is he, I didn't know anything about this guy coming. See, come to find out, it was a total fluke. The the other dealer guy what? had no idea. It was we just were a there. coincidence. Complete coincidence. What are you talking about? For five <laughs> minutes, I was about to go out of my mind thinking, "What's going on here? You know, is he going to? We're going to get in a bidding war with this thing or something?" But it turned out he was just in there to get him a biscuit and his wife a cup of coffee and, and drove off. He must have been feeling the vibes around and I, got I told drawn him a, to the Hardys or something. I told him about it several <laughs> months later. And he got a big laugh out of it. But that was one of the weirdest things ever happened to me. So, I, so everything went fine. Went fine, <laughs> boss banjo, and then it worked out. But for five minutes there, I was like, "What is going on here? Why is he here?" You yeah, know? this is not good. It was crazy. (laughs) That is funny. (laughs) I forget where I read this, maybe your website, but it seemed, uh, I feel like I read you saying that the best way for uh, a serious player to dip their toes into the pre-war experience 
the best value is like a style one conversion. Is that pretty much still it, your opinion? It is, honestly. They're a, a pro-grade banjo. A lot mm -hmm. of them, I started off playing with Doyle Austin with a style one from the 1930s conversion. Banjos, if, for folks that don't know what we're talking about, 99.9% uh, .9 of all the Gibson banjos made during the golden period where everybody's looking for from the late 20s to the 30s, Gibson made a gazillion four-string short-neck tenor banjos. They were basically the king at the time. You had right. Dixieland jazz and other types of music for the tenor banjo. They see, they've said that if you were a college-age student during the 20s, more than likely you played tenor banjo rather than guitar. That was really a popular instrument in America until the guitar took over somewhat later in the mid to late 30s. But uh, Gibson made bunches and bunches, thousands of tenor banjos, but very few original five-string banjos. And I have people say... Well, my God, why didn't they make any five-string banjos? That's what everybody wants. Well, at the time, bluegrass didn't exist. That's Earl not Scruggs, what they wanted. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Earl Scruggs hadn't come along yet and made them popular, and, yeah. and other folks, and the music just wasn't there for it. So, of course, Earl Scruggs and Don Reno, all the people we mentioned before, started off playing pre-war Gibson banjos. I asked Earl one time, and I asked Curtis McPeak one time. Curtis McPeak was another, probably the granddaddy of all pre-war Gibson. He just passed away not long ago, but... Uh, right. One of the the, the oldest uh, pre-war Gibson dealers and had owned hundreds and hundreds of banjos over the years. And I asked him, how did you know you wanted a pre-war Gibson banjo? And uh, I asked Earl that in his kitchen one time. And he said, well, I just knew that was a banjo to have. <laughs> you know, they, they grew up knowing that. And, I, and I, I dug deeper and you find out that guys like Snuffy Jenkins and Wade Maynard and Matt Crow and all these people that they're talking about seeing as children were playing Gibson Mastertone. So, sure, everything has a nucleus. And. And uh, you, you start to learn from that. But the back to the style one you ask about, the 1930 style ones and two conversion banjos, the conversion process is nothing new. It's been going on since well before I was born. Uh, late 50s, probably somebody figured out that all these banjo bodies, be it a tenor banjo, a five-string plectrum, the bodies are all identical and you can bolt a five-string neck on. So mm -hmm. voila, you can take these tenors and make a five-string of them. And that's what most of the – when somebody says pre-war Gibson banjo today, George Grun did a great article 30 years ago probably in uh, I forget what, maybe Fretz Magazine. I can't remember exactly what it was, but he said 99.9% .9 of all pre-war Gibsons you may see – hear about at a festival or at a show or wherever you might be are in some way a conversion, meaning right. they were converted from four string to five or from arch top to flathead or at some, some or situation. Both, exactly. Exactly. But they make great banjos and they are absolutely, I've had some conversion style ones that compete with uh, the original flathead five string. Some of them sound better sometimes. So yeah. this is one of those kind of things. Now is the, other than aesthetics, is the only main difference the the coordinator rod basically uh it's all cosmetic i'll be honest with you okay. the main uh, the main thing is the tone ring if it, if it were not a master tone the master tone started with the style three so you have a style one a style two but prior to that you had a double aught one two the three was the first designation that had a master tone master status tone, and yeah. it meant it had a tone ring rather than a tone hoop but God. the style ones and twos lend themselves very well to be upgraded with a tone ring yeah Maybe you have a perspective on this, maybe not. But but if you do, I'd love for you to maybe, it, like, let's say we have a great pre-war banjo or maybe someone's swapping parts out. Which parts do you think are the most contribute, uh, important contributors for tone? And maybe wh what effect do you think each has? I guess maybe, you know, we're talking the main things like the 
rim, the tone ring, the resonator, the neck. Absolutely. You hit on the, the main ones right there. The, for me, the wood rim and the resonator are most important. That's your, mm. that's considered the body of the pot of the banjo. And around that, you can pretty much build all kinds of metal flanges, tension hoops, modern stuff works really good because like I say, high quality stuff's being made today. <clears throat> but I think that wood rim is really the heart of the engine of a banjo. That's, if you think about it, you know, the tone ring is is a wonderful thing. Don't get me wrong, but I think lots of times the tone ring gets more credit than it deserves. Huh. I think, uh, and I can show you with banjos here in the show, showroom that don't have a heavy cast tone ring. They just have a, a quarter-inch roll brass hoop even that can sound great, and they already have that yeah. pre-war sound inherent in them. The tone ring is like icing on the cake. It may add a little more volume, a little more sustain or something like that, but that wood rim and resonator to me, and, of course, neck wood is important. You know, the, the three primary woods that Gibson used were mahogany, walnut, and maple, mm -hmm. and each one has kind of different characteristics, but the, the the rim and the resonator would be the most important things to me in a, in a banjo potty. Gotcha. Any popular misconceptions about pre-war instruments that you want that you want to uh, address <laughs> once and for all? Well, I read, I see all the forums and things out there. Again, I don't get on there and talk too much. I'm not technical, but I see a lot of people are confused when you say conversion banjo. They okay. automatically, if I can clear this up to some degree, and you know, some people may still feel that way, and they they have the right to, but. It's been common that this is not me talking. This has been around, like I say, since before I ever got into dealing in banjos. But if a, if the body of a banjo is fully original as far as wood finish, metal parts, and plating, this hadn't been replated, it hadn't been refinished, mm -hmm. and all you've done is add a five-string neck and possibly a modern flathead or archtop tone ring to it, that's considered a pre-war conversion banjo. It's not... Uh, looked down upon as as would be say a what's considered truly a parts banjo where you have maybe an original wood rim and that's the only thing pre-war on the whole banjo yeah now that would be considered truly a parts banjo it's got a pre-war rim and that's all but if a banjo's got basically the whole body of the banjo's original as it left the factory and you've upgraded it to master tone status with a ring and a neck then that's still considered an original banjo in banjo trading circles and has been, like I say, since before I was born. So okay. that's the difference. A lot of people, there's a lot of misconceptions when they say, well, it hadn't got a, the neck's new and the tone ring's new. Why do they call it original banjo? Well, it started life without a five-string neck and without a flathead tone ring, but every the, the actual body and engine of it, if you're looking at it in the in the terms of a classic car, I use classic cars a lot to equate the, the same thing with a conversion banjo. Yeah. I watch a lot uh, of nuts and bolts it, well, in both of them. Well, yeah. there's similar things. I don't know if, if, if people are into classic cars these days. I watch uh, Meekum Auctions and Barrett Jackson and stuff like that with mm -hmm. classic cars. You take a 68, plain 68 Camaro. It came with a little small block engine. Uh, they're great little cars. They're beautiful. They bring a certain amount of money. Say they bring... $30,000 as a straight-up, plain-Jane 68 Camaro that's been restored and all original factory just like it came. But they also, at the same time, made a 68 Camaro Super Sport that had a big engine, a different rear end, different transmission, had the logo on the side that said Super Sport SS. And they make kits today that you can take a plain-Jane 68 Camaro and upgrade it to a Super Sport. And you put yeah. a big engine in it, you put another rear end in it, you put another transmission in it, and it looks just like... A super sport from the factory runs just as fast, rides just as good, as beautiful, and they bring a lot more money than the straight up plain Jane wow. sixty eight. That's to my way of thinking. That's the same thing as a conversion banjo. It's still yeah. an original Camaro. 
you've not uh, made something out of something that was completely just made up out of the blue. It's still a factory 68 Camaro, but you've upgraded it to a super sport. And that's kind of what I look at the banjos. Like you're taking a tenor banjo that basically is not uh, that popular today, and you've made a five-string master tone out of it. Mm-hmm. But the, the body of the banjo is still there if it hadn't been boogered with, you know. Yeah. I think that makes sense as long as everyone, yeah, is right. on the same page, of exactly. course, and before the car- you drop a lot of money on, <laughs> exactly. on something. Exactly. And, and the other thing is guaranteeing what you're buying. You know, a lot yeah. of people, the other misconception is uh, that aftermarket parts have been on the market in the pre-war Gibson banjo world for 50 years now more. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, armrests, tension hoops, flanges, and that kind of thing. And if if any of those parts is not original on a so-called conversion pre-war banjo, this should be reflected in the price because... Uh, an aftermarket flange sells for sixty bucks, where an original one can sell for a thousand. Yeah. So you have to know what you're buying in that regard, or you can get burned up. And that's one of the things I do. Anything I sell, I, I type up a paper with it stating this is original. I guarantee it. Stand behind it, and you can take it to anybody that's qualified, and they'll tell you what it's supposed to be. And that, yeah, that's yeah. A, a difference. Very important. So I think my I think my last question for you is is a a, a pretty common one that people have. Uh, what are the chances of any of us getting to see and hear Jim Mills playing live regularly or maybe even <laughs> recording another album? I probably slim, honestly. I'm to an age I'm just enjoying being at home. Man, I traveled so long and <clears throat> I appreciate when people ask. It's been fun, but you know, I get out and play with friends now and do some fun things. Vince Gill played with for the last 10 years or so whenever he does bluegrass stuff. So that's been a lot of fun. Oh, and great. Barry Bales, uh, Allison Krauss bass player, puts together some things. We go out and play band situations. Did thing not too long ago with Dan Tominski and Ronnie Bowman. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of fun and that's the kind of stuff I'm enjoying these days. It's just fun for me, you know. But uh, no aspirations. My biz, my business keeps me busy here, so I'm, I'm happy. Well, speaking of that, make sure let's let's let you give a a sales pitch or a plug. Tell everyone about what you're. You know, I, I assume a lot of people know, but tell tell everyone what oh, yeah. you're doing here and give the website and all well, that. Sure, stuff. I, I tell people the entire time I was playing professionally 25 years on the road with different bands i was buying and selling trading banjos off my kitchen table and about 10 years ago i started a legit business buying and selling pre-war gibson banjos mainly and uh you can find me anywhere online just type in jim mills banjo or pre-war gibson banjos and i'll i'll come up with all the information there so i'm a buy appointment only business and if you're looking to buy or sell just hit me up yeah great (laughs) um i did ask for Facebook questions. Let me make sure that I did not neglect yeah, take time. In any of those. Someone's asking, what's the best pre-war flathead you've owned? Is it safe to assume that yeah, it's, the, it's the macro? For me, you know, I, I've probably had other banjos somebody else may like better, but for myself, in my opinion, it's my favorite I've ever had. What banjo did you play on the uh, Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver recordings? Most of that was a 1930s style one conversion. And I we covered it jim well thank you so much for being <laughs> right, Keith. so generous with your time it's been a real uh real honor and a pleasure to to sit here with you and chat well i had a good time and uh if i can help you with anything else let me know <laughs> yeah absolutely 
Thanks for tuning in, folks. That's going to do it for the interview with Jim Mills and this episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. The song clips you heard in this were Theme Time by Jim Mills, Foggy Mountain Breakdown by Flat and Scruggs, She's No Angel by Summer Wages, Now There's You by Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver, three songs by Jim Mills, that's John Henry Blues, Bound to Ride, and The Hydehead Blues, and then finally, All in My Love for You by Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver. Extra special thanks once again to the Hall of Honor patron of the show, that's Nathan Sims. Head over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to support the show and also to join us for this month's VIP video meetup that's happening Saturday, January 28th at 12 o'clock noon Eastern time. Hope to see you all there and I hope to see you all back here for the next episode. Everyone take care.